great pleasure to, uh, to be able to talk in the museum to such a varied audience. So what I'm going to uh, try and do this evening is uh, to try and answer for you a number of questions. How does the brain process the image of the visual world? Does the visual brain provide a perfect representation of the outside visual world, so like a, a passive process like a camera, or does it actually construct a reality created, uh, within our brain? Can the visual illusion tell us something about the processing of vision and how the neurobiology of vision? And finally, do patients who have damage to their visual brain, can they tell us something about how we normally process vision? So this is a, a, well, be a well-known picture to everybody in the audience, this picture by Turner from 1844, shortly after the Great Western Railway uh, um, had uh, been built, and this is on, in uh, Marlow. And when, when Turner was standing here, he had, his visual brain had to process the form of the, uh, of, of the train, this isn't going to work, uh, and the colour, there was rain sweeping down, so he had to process the motion uh, and the depth of the various objects within this. So how does our visual brain process all of this? First of all, we have to realize that, in fact, we see a, clearly a very small area. So this is because if you look at the eye, at the back of the eye, there is a concentrated area of photoreceptors that gives us a high acuity. So if you look at a, uh, a team of uh, um, footballers and you look at this gentleman here, you haven't got a spare battery, have you? Ah, uh, because this is almost dead. Um, uh, you'll, you, you see about five degrees very clearly, and everything else is blurred. Now, if I look at you, I don't think that everything is blurred. I think I see everything very clearly. Now, how does this come about? It's because we make a series of snapshots of our visual world. Now, this is a scene, a modern scene of a picture that some of you will recognize. But if we imagine that we're looking at, at this, what we do is we take a series of snapshots. So there's one, and then we rapidly refixate our eyes to make another snapshot, and then we make another one. Each of the red lines is an eye movement, and we make about three of these eye movements every second. So our eyes are always on the move, although you're not aware of it, you think your eyes are st steady. Uh, and eventually you form an overall composite of this, and there, of course, is what the picture was a depiction of, which you all recognize. And this is called the grand illusion of complete perception. So we build up from a series of snapshots. And obviously, David Hockney uh, um, was interested in this. Uh, back in the 1980s, he had his Polaroid camera, and he took a series of snapshots of the same scene, and that formed a photo montage. Uh, and that is, in a way, how we formulate our own uh, visual percept of our visual world. Now, does vision uh, reconstruct reality? And I think this is the best example I know that shows that it doesn't. So now look at A, square A and B. It's a checkerboard. Square B is clearly white. Square A is clearly black. You can see there's a green dial here. And obviously, there's some light coming in from the right-hand side because there's a shadow cast over the checkerboard. Now, if I, if I segregate the, section, uh, the square A from X square B. Let's do that. And now you can see that in fact, both squares are identical. They are both grey. But your visual brain has said that's impossible because this is a checkerboard and that square 
has to be white. So this is a very good example of how we create an interpretation of what is out there in our visual world. Another example, we look at all this fruit, we think we understand the colors of different, uh, different fruits. Here you can see uh, two patches of exactly the same color with a series of uh, shapes around them. Put in color and you can see these two shapes now are a very different tone compared to what we saw before. Richard Gregory uh, unfortunately died a few years, uh, relatively recently. He was a great neuropsychologist and he had the idea that the visual brain was a hypothesis generator of our visual world. We have the reality, what is processed goes into the eye, signal processing, what in computer terms you'd call bottom-up. We have a series of rules that feed into the hypothesis generator and we learn conceptual and perceptual knowledge in a top-down way over, uh, over our life. And we generate in the visual brain an output because what is vision all about? It's about our ability to explore our environment. So let's move on then. So from the eye, we move through a series of, of uh, pathways to the visual brain, which is at the back of the brain, what is called the striate cortex or visual area one. And we know from, the from uh, quite a while ago that there are columns of neurons in this region that respond specifically to orientations, different orientations of, of the image uh, from objects in the visual world. This goes back to the days of Hubel and Weasel, who won the Nobel Prize for this work, and that there are what is known as orientation-selective columns. And what we need when we look at an image such as this is we need to put together a series of these columns that have been activated by the image to give us our visual percept. Now here you can see some parallel lines on both sides, uh, very simple. What happens if you then cause interaction between these, uh, these orientation columns? And now you can see that these lines are no longer par parallel because we've inserted these small lines. With these radiating lines, they've become bowed. And this is a, a, a response to the uh, inhibition, lateral inhibition that goes on, lateral interactions between these orientation columns. Another example that involves uh, this sort of mechanism, and I think this is the best one here with radiating lines, you think there is a solid white uh, circle there, but in fact, there's nothing there. It's just that the lines terminated. 10% of you, so if there are about 100 or so people, about 10 or 15 of you will suffer from migraine, and those of you who have a visual uh, aura associated with your migraine will be aware of this, what is called a, a scintillating fortification spectra that suddenly appears at the beginning of your migraine and gets bigger and bigger uh, in the shape of a medieval fort. And, uh, and this is again thought to be due to, first of all, excitation passing across these orientation columns and then uh, it followed by inhibition as the vision blurs out. Now that's a little bit about the primary visual cortex, the visual cortex that receives a direct input, but surrounding this is a large area and the vision takes up much more of the brain than any other sense, uh, which is called the extrastriate cortex. And one of the issues that has been uh, of interest to neuroscientists and psychologists for a century or more has been the whole issue, if we take the visual brain, do we process each component of vision, the different attributes uh, of form or color or motion separately, or are they all processed all over this uh, visual brain? The idea of being of functional specialization. Are there specialized areas of the cortex that are responsible for one or other of these percepts? 
Joseph Gall in the uh, early 19th century was interested in this and he thought there was functional specialization. The only problem was that his functional specialization was related to the lumps and bumps on the head, which we don't think we've got some better lumps and bumps within the brain now through functional imaging. Now let's just consider uh, color for a moment. Why do we have color? Well, if you look in the, in the uh, from an ecological point of view, if you look into the savannah, you can see, well, you're not quite sure whether there's something that might eat you or there's something that you might want to eat. But if we put color in, you can see that we've got bananas and we've got a possible predator sitting there. So color, uh, development of color has been ecologically extremely valuable. Now, this goes back to a good long while ago when I was interested in seeing whether we could find in normal human subjects evidence for functional specialization in the visual brain. And this was before we had magnetic resonance imaging that you heard about before. Here we did this on the same basis, but we used a radioactive tracer to show blood flow, and changes of blood flow reflect the neuronal activation. So the greater neur the neur neuronal activation there is, the greater the blood flow will be. And we showed subjects this uh, multicolored set of shapes, and we asked them to look at this, and then we compared the, the blood flow with when they had their eyes closed. And you can see that here uh, there is activation. This is the front of the brain looking down on the top of the brain, and this is the back. And you can see all that visual brain that I showed you in the diagram uh, is activated. Now what we did is just to ask them to look at this, which is exactly the same in terms of the form, the shapes, the same amount of light gets into the eye, but now there are a series of greys and blacks, no colour at all. And what happens if we compare the signal that we get between these two? And we find now that we've cancelled out, if we look down, most of the visual brain, but there are two areas on either side lying on the lower, uh, the inferior surface of the brain, at the back of the brain, which appear to be activated primarily in, for, due to colour, because the only difference between these two sets of uh, scans has been that one they were looking at colour, the other they were looking at something that was just black and white. So we have evidence, therefore, that there is an area on the inferior surface, uh, coloured there red, which is, has been called visual area 4, or the colour area. Now, it's all very well to be able to show this with uh, scans and MRI scans have repeated all this uh, in much, much more elegantly than we were able to do. Um, but what happens if you have damage to that area? Because the hypothesis would be, if this area is specifically concerned with colour, if you damage just that little area, then the patient should be able to see everything, see motion, but not be able to see colour. So what happens? Yes, yes the main difference is that colours, everything is grey, uh, very shades of grey, So this is a patient with a condition that is called achromatopsia, an acquired condition due to a small stroke that he had, but, but he has complete preservation of all the other visual attributes. So this is really what he can see. On the, uh, in fact, he has both fields that are affected, but he'll see all the forms, so he'll see the flowers, he'll see movement, he'll see depth, but he won't see any colour. Uh, he can draw things, but again, he can't see the colour. Now, there's one other aspect that is very fascinating about colour. These are pictures that you'll recognise from Monet, who in the 1890s 
uh, hard, uh, rented a garret uh, looking at the uh, Rouen Cathedral and at different times of the day and in the evening he painted about 30 pictures of this exactly the same scene and this is in bright sunlight here on the lower, uh, the lower left and this was in, on a wet day uh, in the, over on the right hand side. Now, was that what he actually saw because of the different levels of illumination, or was that, in fact, his impression of what he saw? If we look at uh, this, these bowls of, this bowl of fruit, the same bowl of fruit under different uh, uh, background illuminations, so with fluorescent light, clear blue light, and hazy daylight, you can see that the yellows are still there. They slightly change in hue, but they're still there. The orange is the same. Now, colour is dependent on the reflection of different wavelengths from the objects in front of us, from you sitting there in front of me. And this is a phenomenon that is called colour constancy. So if we take the orange and we just look at the reflection of the wavelengths, so along here you can see wavelengths, uh, and here you can see the orange in an orange colour. You can see there under daylight, these are the wavelengths that are reflected back to your, uh, to your eye, and here you can see it under fluorescent light. So they're, exactly, they're, they're very different, the, uh, the uh, background, the reflected uh, wavelengths. And this is because of this phenomenon called colour constancy, or what we call discounting the illuminant. And we have some evidence that there's an area in front of this colour area that is responsible for this. Now let's just turn to motion. Now I've been talking about functional specialisation. I've shown you that there's one area that seems to be concerned with colour. But if there's functional specialisation, I have to prove to you that there will be another area somewhere else which is involved with another uh, visual attribute, such as motion. So in that same experiment, which we did with colour, we asked the subject, same subjects to look at a static series of dots. And then we did, looked at their, did their brain scan, and then we did the same thing when the, when the dots were moving in a Brownian motion. And what did we find? We found here, superimposed on uh, a sort of montage of the, of the brain, a completely different area that became lit up, uh, activated by this motion. This is what is called visual area 5. This is the back of the brain here. There's the occipital lobe. Uh, and, uh, and we know from experiments on monkeys and other uh, primates that, the, that this area contains motion-sensitive neurons. It specifically contains these neurons that respond to movement. Now here's a little experiment that you can do. If you just look at this uh, little twi twi twig going into the waterfall, and we'll run the waterfall for a few seconds, and then when it stops, what the majority of you should see is a reverse waterfall, but the waterfall goes up. And we think that this is partly or at least related to fatigue of a population of these motion-selective neurons, that uh, for a short period, the ones that are responsible for upward movement get dominance before we go back to a steady state. Now, what about this? Can we see motion in static images? Well, this is a rather boring uh, picture of a yellow circle surrounded uh, by a series of blue circles. If in this wonderful picture by Leviant, you look at the central yellow, and just keep looking at it for a few seconds, what you should start seeing is motion in those circles. And it will start chopping and changing, uh, anti-clockwise and clockwise. And this is, uh, and if we do a scan when subjects are looking at this, we can find that indeed this visual area 5, the same area that I showed you when it responded to movement in the visual world, actually becomes activated. 
Now, how is this possible? We're not sure. A number of different uh, proposals have been put forward for this, uh, and you're, some of you remember uh, or know Bridget Riley's pictures, which have the same effect of giving a motion, an illusion of motion. Uh, it's probably related to very small in, involuntary eye movements that give rise to small displacements of the image that give us this motion. But again, if that area is primarily concerned with motion, what happens if we damage it? So Robert's station was able to see the platform was going to put through into the, the platform and as I'm walking up, This is a phenomenon called achinotopsia. It's incredibly rare. Uh, and this lady, who was uh, a patient of a colleague of mine up in Glasgow, uh, described this. Fortunately for her, it only lasted for 48 hours. Um, whereas the patient I showed you with the achromatopsia, that was, he had, had that for the rest of his life. Uh, and it's a defect of the perception purely of visual motion. Uh, the scan hopefully would show damage to that area, and indeed it does. Just the area V5 on either side was damaged temporarily by some vascular insult, we don't know what it was, uh, that, that passed off. So I think that on the basis of that I've shown you there are two areas, one for colour, one for motion, that are very separate. There's the one on the bottom of the, of the brain, and there's one on the side of the brain for motion. Now what about faces? This is the most developed of visual perceptual skills in humans, do we have any specific processing for faces? They're very important, obviously, for social interactions, for identifying people, for telling us about the mood of an individual, for telling us uh, whether there's suddenly something in the periphery that is attracting their attention, and also it uh, is useful for enhancing our comprehension of speech. Now, this is uh, uh, what's called a bistable illusion. You'll look at it and you'll see that there's a vase there, and then you look at it again and you'll suddenly see that there's some faces. And I have to say that I've been showing this for about 15 years until a couple of years ago, I suddenly realized who the faces were. Have you got it? Yep, good. Well, you're quicker than me. Um, <coughs> so, and this is, and, and here we have another uh, interesting phenomenon that, sh that shows that face recognition is a very important part of our visual processing. This you can see is a mask, uh, and this is the convex con uh, side of the, of the mask, and now we'll rotate it. And as we go into the concave part, this is a concave part, you see it becomes convex, and as it comes back, it's convex, and now it'll go back again, and the, the visual brain is saying, I've never seen a concave face, so it can't be concave, it has to be convex. And so you, 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 your percept uh, responds appropriately. Now, interestingly, in the 1980s, um, um, neurophysiologists discovered that there was a region uh, anterior to the posterior part of the brain uh, in the temporal lobe that seems to be specifically concerned with uh, face recognition. 
And here you can see that the, the image that is put in front of the monkey, uh, recording from a neuron, and the height of this, the, uh, the spikes here tells us the frequency of firing of the neurons. And you can see that it fires when the, when the face is presented. If you jumble up the face, exactly the same image is there, but they're jumbled up, the cell doesn't respond at all. And so there seem to be these face-selective neurons in this part of the visual, um, this part of the temporal lobe. You can see that the, uh, the experimenter, second from the right, gets a bit of a response because he's not far off a monkey, but the hand, of course, doesn't. <laughs> And we know from modern functional imaging that, in fact, there are these areas on the inferior surface of the brain in front of that color area, which is called the fusiform face area, and on the lateral side, the superior temporal sulcus, that are involved in uh, face recognition. So now we've got a number of three different areas concerned with uh, our visual processing. And here's just one, uh, what happens in, with damage. This is a French lady who the older members of the uh, audience will recognize for who she's looking at. So somebody of her generation should immediately say it's General de Gaulle, and she'll describe him in great detail, but cannot say that it's, Gen it's General de Gaulle. And then, in fact, I won't go on, but there's a picture of the experimenter and in front of her, and she has no idea that it's the chap sitting right next door to her. And this is a, a phenomenon called prosopagnosia, a neurological disorder characterized by an inability to recognize previously known uh, known faces and to learn new ones. And lastly, what about objects? Uh, very, very important to be able to recognize objects. And this is a, 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 a functional scan when the, subjects are being, the subject is being shown a sort of hominoid figure like this and then a series of lines. And you'll see how the activation of the brain jumps from one side to the other depending on what the subject is looking at. You can see when it's aligned, it's on the inner surface of the, uh, of the, the back part of the brain. This is all the back part of the brain. And when it's hominoid, it's on the lateral side. And from more sophisticated uh, tests, we know that there are specific areas that seem to be concerned with faces, with, for example, houses, with chairs, but that they, they, they merge. There different emphases in different parts of the inferior part of the brain. And what, again, finally happens when you damage this area? Well, this is a patient that Ben Humphreys, who's going to talk after me, a uh, um, uh, patient that he studied uh, intensely for a long time, and I was uh, able to do some work with him. Here you can see um, the, uh, this is a patient who had a small stroke after um, he had a, his heart started going to an abnormal rhythm, and he's asked to copy these images. You can see he can do it extremely well, copy it very well. Ask him to do something freehand. He's very good with inanimate objects, an aeroplane and a screw, not so good with, uh, for example, a gorilla over there. But if you ask him to tell you what this is, I mean, I hope that everybody in the audience will instantly say this is a pepper pot and this is an onion. If not, come and see me afterwards. Um, but he'll, and he's a very intelligent man, and he described it as a stand containing three separate pans. The top one had a design on the top. The second one had a smaller uh, uh, diameter, etc. And he went on and on. He could go on for five, ten minutes describing that in the most intricate detail, but could never say it's a pepper pot. And he thought the onion was perhaps a, uh, a, a, a necklace of sorts or a fork. And this is what is called visual agnosia. 
And the nice, nice shortest description of this by a neuropsychologist, uh, Teuber, a normal percept stripped of its meaning. So, I think what I hope I've shown you is that there are a number of different parts in the visual brain that are concerned with different aspects of, the, um, of our visual world. Uh, and that we, uh, we use these to describe, to, to image what we see in our, in our visual world. There is some evidence uh, that there is a, what is known as a what and a where pathway that the images, uh, colour and actual uh, faces are in the lower part of the visual brain and spatial aspects are in the upper part of the visual brain. But those of you who have been thinking about what I've been saying will realise that there's a big problem. So consider this ball that is going backwards and forwards. What I've been telling you is that there will be an area in the, uh, in the color region that will be activated, there will be another region in the motion area that will be activated, and there will be another, area in the, uh, another part of the um, spatial area that will be activated. They're all separate, How, but we see everything together. We see a, a combined percept. And this is a phenomenon called the binding problem. How is this all brought together? And it's something that for the younger members of the audience is uh, un really unknown. They're thought to be due to, partly due to synchronization of neuronal discharges that somehow bring this together. But this is a very exciting field for any young person who wants to um, pursue it. So what I hope I've been able to uh, persuade you is that the visual brain is not a mere chronicler of the external physical reality, is an active participant in generating our visual percept according to its own rules and programs. And so to look is to create what you see. Thank you very much.